how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Brooke Randolph is the founder of Sober and Hungry. She is a certified nutritionist and life coach who aims to help clients find holistic resilience and well-being with a curriculum tailored to create lasting change. More specifically, she works with 12-step oriented healing around food and body issues. It is a delight to talk to her on this episode of Sober Sex. Oh my God, this is like, I mean, I know I say this every episode because it's true, but it's like one of the best episodes ever. (laughs) It was such a pleasure to talk to her today. I mean, I really, she has such a way of talking about this stuff that it feels like sort of user-friendly, if that makes sense, and just sort of um, accessible and a completely different perspective than I've ever encountered around it. So I absolutely love talking to Brooke. Yeah. And again, I think it's such, it's it's an issue that really like affects a lot of us in recovery and obviously out of recovery, but it's really like, it's excellent to kind of hear the possibility of healing around it. Um, and man, like I feel really nourished. (laughs) Yes, me too. Great start to the day end to the day whenever, wherever we are. But, (laughs) um, and also just kind of trigger warning for anybody listening, we get kind of deep into the weeds around like what eating disorders, activating disorders and disordered ideas around food and body feel like. Um, so if that's something that's personally triggering for you, maybe skip this one. We love you and we hope we see you next time. And we're rolling. So, Brooke, first things first, what are your pronouns? My pronouns are she, her. Thanks so much for checking. Awesome. So are mm-hmm. mine. Mine too. Beautiful. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Now that that's out of the way, where are you calling from? Where are you calling us from today? So I'm in Santa Cruz, California, which is about six hours north of LA, which was my, kind of my original like sober stomping grounds. Awesome. So, yep, yep. Nice yeah. and like sunny on the sep- No, August. <laughs> Late August day, not quite to September yet. I love Santa Cruz. It's yeah. the best. And how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm really happy to be here with you. And we were just kind of catching up earlier, but, um, you know, just so, always just so blown away by the network of connections that sobriety has given to me and to all of us and you know like Lily you and I connected in California sort of I think you were sort of in between Europe and I think I was was, yeah yep yep and so yeah just having like that you know LA connection and then you know international connection like it's 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 a thing it's this fellowship that that connects us almost no matter what your path to sobriety right like yes we do think about like fellowship with a capital f as part of that sort of like 12-step language but honestly like any path to sobriety creates new connections you know that can be really miraculous in their reach 
Yeah, absolutely. And it sort of employs more like conscious conversations that you can have in so many different realms, you know, like there's so many ways to have those kind of conscious conversations, which I feel like, you know, and, and full disclosure here, I, I've worked with Brooke personally and such an amazing um, take on. So I've been so excited for Brooke to come on because I just I really love what she brings to the table as far as a kind of consciousness around, you know, body. And it, it's like so much about, you know, we talk about food with Brooke, but also there's, it's way more than about food and body. It's about like a whole, an all over approach to this stuff. So anyways, I'm just excited. Yay. I'm excited. Yay. <laughs> well, you know, to kind of touch on that and we'll probably get into it a little bit later in the conversation, but I think it's like, I don't know if I know like more than maybe a handful of people who are women who don't struggle with this as part of their recovery. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily to say like everybody is a fucking eating disorder. (laughs) That's to say that like, I think we live in a a society where it's really complicated. And especially once we start to get sober and like heal other parts that this can get really loud, you know, and it's it's hard to find like a path that feels like it has integrity, um, you know, just because we're getting constant messages around it. Yes. Yeah. That was absolutely my experience. Uh, Actually, you know, for me and for most of the people that I work with, the food was the first place where addictive thoughts, feelings, and behaviors manifested. And, you know, these acceptable societal messages of this looks right and this looks wrong. This should be enjoyed um, in, you know, these ways and this shouldn't um, is so... um, it, it, again, it, it's so acceptable and, you know, in something as fundamental as eating, that shows up very early. So, um, you know, I like joke with people, I'm like, it should be hungry, sober, and hungry again, because honestly, <laughs> that's where a lot of this starts to form in terms of restriction and deprivation and, you know, again, societal messaging, informing our disconnection between what we know to be true for ourselves, but what standards we're trying to meet outside of us. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's also like, I mean, uh, I I feel like we're blowing our load. We have to like, like, how are you in the pandemic? (laughs) Let's do, let's delve into the childhood programming. No, no, no. We can absolutely roll back and kind of get deep into that. That shit is so real though. Like, I mean, yes. I, Lily and I are not like I, you too, Lily. Right? Like that was the first thing. Oh yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, like first I, messaging I got, oh. you know, and yeah, and I think like you know, well, again, we can we can backpedal in a minute to some you know basics, but <laughs> I was just thinking about how you know for the longest time I had such a breakthrough with Brooke because for the longest time before I kind of thought it was about food and. Just like it's not about alcohol, of course it's about alcohol and of course it's about food, but it's not really about food in a way. So when I thought like for all those years I was trying to control the food, it's because it wasn't really about food, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, um, but so anyways, we'll get into all that, but I just... uh, Yeah. Oh, I, I'm like, should we just start getting questions? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's let's just ask you though. So, how has the pandemic been for you? How's pandemic life been? Yeah, and honestly, I think that question totally flows into you know the topics that that we're discussing. Discussing, I would say first and foremost, you know, um, 
and Lily, I think I heard you talking about this a little bit when you were um, front and center, right, in the podcast, I yes. think, a few weeks ago. I'm very fortunate not to have been directly affected by COVID. I have not experienced it. I've not lost anyone close to me to it. Um, and so, you know, I sort of lead with that gratitude, right? That said, I know so many people have, and I know later we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, how this particular situation has brought people face to face in some ways, or driven them maybe further into denial, right, about the relationship that they have with food or, you know, external substances. But yeah. for me, you know, pandemic life has been a simplifying process. I would mm. say, like, my life really, it's so funny, it actually coincided with the full-time launch of this business. So I was living in LA until, thank you, yeah, until 2019, and that, the summer, basically, before the pandemic, I, like, quit my full-time job, I went full-time into Sober and Hungry, moved, so I was just I had already kind of boiled it down to some very fundamentals, right? This business, my recovery, and my partnership. So um, that was just kind of accelerated, I think, by the pandemic. Um, and it really meant I just spent a lot of time with my own thoughts, with my own person. Um, and yeah. I actually was very pleased with how okay with that I was. And I say this because... This is coming from a person who like couldn't sit in my own skin long enough for a thought to enter my brain before I put alcohol or food into my body, you know? Yeah. So to now be on the other side where I actually very, very much enjoy my mind <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> I can be with it when I don't enjoy it, right? When it does feel like it's in its injury. Mm. Um, what a miraculous experience that is. So, yeah, I've been really grateful for how much healing has happened. Yeah, what a, what a kind of watermark of, like, progress just to be like, actually, I'm totally okay, even when everything doesn't feel okay. Like, there, there's no urgent need to anesthetize the situation, even if I'm not having a good time. <laughs> it's, like, right. major. Right. Major. Oh. Major. Like, that's everything, isn't it? That's a, like, that's the... That's the healing to me. It is absolutely that internal regulation that I was always looking for, right, in the thing out, mm -hmm. outside of me. And I kind of think that leads into the next topic, yes. really, right, which has been like... Totally. So, yeah. like, basically, you know, as mentioned, confinement, disruption of social rhythms, depression, and anxiety linked... Um, to these turbulent times, <laughs> let me repeat that question because I put a period in accidentally and it made it sound crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> confinement, so disruption of social rhythms, depression, and anxiety linked to these turbulent times have created a lot of dysregulation around the many interactive food or feel in their skin. So have you seen this reflected in your business? Uh, yes. <laughs> Short answer, absolutely. Hell yeah. So... <laughs> Oh my goodness, absolutely. So in ways that have been actually really, really profound. Um, so I kind of start thinking about this question in terms of like the really big picture here, which is like we live in a world that really profits from us being de dependent on 
external circumstances for our internal regulation, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm not just talking about like booze, food, obviously those are the big ones, but even like, you know, the news <laughs> wants to mm -hmm. hook us, taking us on this roller coaster of emotions and we start to feel very dependent on voices, on opinions, on thoughts outside of us. There's nothing wrong with taking in the world. Like, that's what this body is meant to do, right? It's meant to interact with the world. But um, again, you know, food, alcohol, companies, you know, want to offer like escape, relaxation, celebration. You know, I just mentioned the news, right? Feeling really scared and anxious and frustrated. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, on the flip side, giving us very strong opinions about how we should be thinking and feeling about mm -hmm. things. And looking. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, that obviously is huge. So there's nothing wrong with these things. So I'm not here to, like, decry, you know, the products of human ingenuity, right? Like, yeah. I'm all for them, interestingly. <laughs> However, if we're giving all of our power to these things, right, to determine our internal, you know, emotional states, we're going to feel, like, horribly dysregulated without them. Mm. And, you know, if we're one of the special ones and we become literally addicted to external <laughs> substances, then we're actually losing our free will, right, which is, like, one of the most painful human experiences I think we can have, yeah. right? Yeah, so, that's where they're, so like, powerless and unmanageable kind of comes into yeah, play, right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's so true. Like that for me, you know, at least with food, like I've noticed that like some of that feeling of like complete powerlessness, powerlessness and unmanageability almost came up more with food as a substance than it has with anything else. Like uh -huh. this feeling of like, I'm not going to do this again. It's sort of like loss of your free will. Like you're talking about just being, mm -hmm. you know, being fully convinced I'm never going to do this again. This is so painful. And then hours days, whatever, later, there you are again doing the same behavior. And the hopelessness that comes with that is just profound. And so you're right about like the kind of loss of free will around that stuff. And you know what I was actually thinking about right now? I was curious kind of, you know, there was this sort of like moment in the pandemic, I feel like in the beginning where everybody went, okay, now I have to write this big book. I have to get in mm -hmm. shape. I have to figure out my relationship with food. I have to look better than I ever have, whatever it is. Like, how much did you encounter people coming to you potentially or, or, you know, hearing the message of like, well, I have to do all this now and I have this time frame to kind of like, do you yeah. know what I mean? Did that yeah. come up at all where it's like, I have to have this crazy overhaul of my entire, you know, and kind of missing what the, the sort of all over approach of it is. Mm, yeah. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. No, totally. You know, I would have to say, <laughs> I think this might boil down actually to like the literal name of my company, which is Sober and Hungry. I feel yes. like that really, people <laughs> really filter themselves out in terms of like, I just want a diet, right? I just want something that's going to, yes. you know, give me this shot of, ho of hope that's going to relieve the obsession for like right. five minutes, right? That I can just kind of obsess about for a little while. I'm not ready to, to talk about food in terms of dependency, addiction. It's about food, but not about food, right? So I feel like most yeah. people who like get to the point where they're on the phone with me, 
have almost self-selected where they're like, I'm ready to solve the problem. And I know that weight mm, and appearance yeah. is a symptom of a problem that I have that yes. I don't understand. So, you know, I think like the mm. good news in all of this, the pandemic situation, and, and again, that really feeling very dysregulated because our, you know, external is very dysregulated. I've seen people really come yeah. face to face with, with their with their external dependencies and really tell themselves the truth about what it's costing them, right? Which mm. goes so far beyond weight and, and what it looks like. Um, I think the mind is very clever at rationalizing consequences. So as long as we were just staying in our very ordered little worlds, right? And going to work and coming home and, you know, yeah. doing the thing and no pandemic, <laughs> you know, we could really rationalize, oh, next week, next month, just got to go on another diet, just got to whatever, just got to exercise more, I'm going to go to boot camp, I'm going to power, right? Like we just <laughs> rationalize. And Lily, exactly yeah. as you were saying, like, and, and experiencing this profound shame, guilt, lack of self, you know, the, the erosion of like our self-will, <laughs> but yeah. just dressing it up and like, it's normal, it's fine, right? Like that little yeah. meme of the dog with the mug. <laughs> on fire. Like, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> And so this has been a moment where suddenly we couldn't live in comfortable oblivion anymore, mm. right? And it's like the most freaking painful as well as the most profound catalyst, I think, for real change and the work it takes to achieve that, which, you know, yeah. is no, no small undertaking. Well, yeah, and I, I love that you're like, you know, it's, it's about food, it's not about food. And I mean, I think that also, like, I don't know, personally, and I guess this leads kind of to our next question, like, I feel like I'm really unplugging from the matrix around like diet culture and mm -hmm. it, like, I don't remember a time in my life where I wasn't restricting and kind of participating in my own exercise bulimia. And that's not necessarily mm -hmm. changing. Like I'm definitely like my life can be a training plan and I don't, I'm not, I'm like this also in a lot of ways it, it's either a weapon or it's a tool that brings me like joy and peace and ease in my body. But at the same time, like all of the, like, I think for me and, and probably a lot of people that you talk to, it's not even about the behaviors necessarily, but the, because the behaviors don't change. It's like, for, for me at least, like my, it's, it's hyper-regulated, you know, but it, and mm. by which I mean controlled. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's more the idea of like, oh fuck, like actually what if my entire self-worth wasn't based on how like hollow I felt like between like my spine and my hips, you know, or what if it wasn't based on like, what if I didn't have my entire experience of a uh, situation change based on like seeing a photo of myself and being like, I look fat, you know, mm -hmm. like all that mm -hmm. stuff is so like ingrained, Oof. you know? Oh man. Mm -hmm. And it's, I feel really vulnerable talking about it because it's very much kind of a new idea to be like, wait, like this is the least interesting thing about you. So like your, mm -hmm. your appearance, you know, and, and like, being and like Lily lives in fucking Los Angeles, which is like for me a definitely a head trip with all this shit because the diet culture messages are so loud. And even in yes. Paris, which is like quite disordered but has different messaging. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I know on Sober Sex, we're pretty curious, or I'm, I'll personally speak for myself, I'm very curious about this idea of body neutrality because immediately I rejected it. I was like, it is important. 
I do want to look fucking fierce and basically like a whip it on speed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if I'm not looking like yeah. that, then it's my fault and I'm doing something wrong and I have to go harder, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And so how does one reconcile the desire to feel neutral or accepting of their body as it is with wanting to lose weight or gain muscle or have aesthetic goals? Like, and can those two things coexist? I mean, that might be mm-hmm. a, the rest of the podcast that we're talking about. This. I know. No, <laughs> Sorry. no, it's a really, no, it's an amazing question. And it's something that in some ways I feel like since launching full time, okay, so, you know, I have this business, I'm incredibly passionate about like helping clients solve food addiction. And when you have a business, you have to market your business, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I have to get in front of people who don't know yeah. that this solution exists. Mm -hmm. So in the marketing part of this, I have had to think so deeply about how to talk about this stuff without triggering, you know, the, the shame that we have been taught to feel and we have been taught to feel this about our bodies. We are not born hating our bodies. We are not born feeling shame. I see this in my two and a half year old niece, you know, who runs around naked with her belly sticking, her beautiful, amazing, gorgeous little belly sticking out and, you know, flesh Mm. on her thighs and like thinking that she's really not thinking about her body other than what it's doing Mm -hmm. to get her to the waves, you know, to get her to the swing set. So, you know, we don't, we aren't born with this. Okay, let's talk about our body for just a second, because I think this is kind of like the question and kind of how we lead into it, because I think it's so easy to intellectualize all of this so much, and like, I'm just really interested in the body like as a feeling instrument. That's what it is. Mm. It's a feeling instrument, okay? So the body is a feeling instrument. It feels in two ways. First is physically, so it feels hot and it cold and hunger and, you know, a a burn or a cut or, um, you know, pleasant warmth or, right, it it gets external sensations or internal sensations. Yes, exactly, and like feeds that to the brain. Then our amazing (laughs) brains, right, interpret those signals emotionally. And so this is the second way that the body feels, right? So it can feel physically and it can feel emotionally. Like both of those are physical sensations, but there's two different inputs. Mm -hmm. We don't have any control over our physical sensations. So like pain is pain, right? Like I know that there's some, you know, and eh, we're not going to go there. But like pain is pain, cold is cold, hot is hot, right? Wait, 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 pause. This is a long form podcast. What were you going to (laughs) say? I'm really curious now. Well, I feel like there's so much coaching now around, you know, thought work and how we interpret physical sensations in our body and that we have tons of control even over how those physical sensations feel. And I think, I I understand like the benefit of that, but I think that could also be a big problem. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. Hot take. This is totally my opinion, but um, I I think we can end up punishing ourselves for like feeling pain as pain, Mm. (laughs) feeling hunger as hunger, right? Like, I'm not here to tell you hunger is comfortable, right? Or like, you know, pain is in your, like, I just think that we can go really far in that direction and we can interpret that this like, oh, we 
have so much authority in our minds about how we're interpreting something emotionally that we can actually make that physical sensation different than it is. Yeah. I mean, of course. And like, I know that it wasn't until I kind of started to do a specific kind of therapy around like, uh, let's say like seven or eight years sober that I even could have emotional, like physical sensations around emotional, uh, feelings. Like, yes. because I was so yes. disassociated. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, who yep. knew? That's fear. Yeah, right. <laughs> this right? is how it feels because in your what body. What does food and alcohol do? It it numbs the feeling instrument, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, totally. Like I used anything that wasn't nailed down to the floor. I swear to God, <laughs> to like not experience the vibrations of a human emotion in my body. Like it just yeah. was not going to happen. So, okay, <laughs> we don't have control over our physical sensations. That's my hot take. And Respect. again, it, <laughs> it, it seems like we don't, you know, have control over our emotions, that we feel a certain way about something because it's inherent in the thing. So let's say by the time you're 14, you're like, cellulite is gross and should be eradicated at all costs, right? Or right. when I feel the hollowness between my hip and my spine, then I am good. Yes. Then I'm good, right? You're going to think that the presence of cellulite makes you disgusted or that that feeling makes you peaceful or calm or happy or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. The flesh is neutral. That physical mm. sensation of emptiness, right, is what, like, is what I'm talking about. The mm -hmm. body sending you a signal, hey, there's no food in here right now. That's it, right? Yeah. How do we know that there's no emotion inherent in that feeling or in that flesh? Because different people have different thoughts about cellulite yeah. and about that feeling. Some people hate that feeling. Some people love it. Some people think it means control. Some people think it means starvation and are terrified, by, right? Cellulite, same thing. There are societies that have very different experiences of cellulite or societal messaging, I should say, than, than others. Or even so throughout our lives, we question, can change our feelings around it, which I think is also telling. Yeah. Right. Where did the initial emotion of disgust about it come from? Where did the initial emotion that we've assigned to that hollow feeling come from? Right? It comes from a thought about the cellulite or the thought that you had, Louisa, about the feeling, right? So the question then becomes, where did that thought come from? Yeah. Where did I learn this? Right. Where did you learn it? Probably from like the head of a magazine company selling you cellulite mm. cream. Yeah. Or who's, selling cellulite cream to your mom. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Who like passed that belief on to you. It comes from a society, right, that tries to create hierarchy based on subjective characteristics, okay? So subjectively, you know, <laughs> nine cis men in a room decide that no cellulite is greater than cellulite. That's yeah. it, right? Like, and so we're going to sell based on that idea. Also, a racist and sexist society, totally. right? Yeah, like a body that hierarchy. Decides Absolutely. Yes. On a standard and then, you know, perpetrates that because 
you know, of the power structure that exists. So this is the last thing I'll say. Then I'll turn it back over to you. I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm just like going off on these no, questions, it's, but it's they're really so important. good. They're so good. Um, I think body neutrality comes from an examination of our thoughts, which sounds like it li the responsibility lies only in us, and I'm actually not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is that the power starts there, and then from there, once we recognize, I was taught to think this, right? Yeah, and somebody also benefited from my self-loathing, which I find particularly troublesome, yes. you know, and fucked and when up. And we trace who benefits, yes, then we can decide what to do about that, right? What to do about that. But we've got to start inward. We have to understand, like, what the problem is, and then we you know, can move forward and like take that power that we find within, which was like, I reject this programming. I'm rejecting the yeah. idea that someone who doesn't even know me has decided that I'm going to think terrible things about mm -hmm. my feeling instrument because they wanted mm -hmm. to sell my mom something, yeah. right? Like, Jesus. So yeah. the power starts there and then moves outward. What Ooh. do you guys think? <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I feel like I'm kind of in the middle of this evolution. Lily, do you want to, do you have, do you have thoughts or feelings on this idea? Cause I know you guys have worked together. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. And I think I, I, I really like where we were starting with the idea of body neutrality and kind of like, what does that look like? Because, you know, not putting too much weight, like, like, kind of having a just it basically for me boils down to a balance of like having the right sort of um I'm having a hard time finding my words but kind of what what sits for me as far as like body neutrality can mean that I care about what my body you know looks like but not but I'm rejecting those sort of traditional messages but you know for me like for the longest time basically whatever my body looked like that day was the almost 100% deciding force in what the rest of my day was mm -hmm. going to look like or how I felt about myself or how I felt in the world. And so having like the experience of honoring my body and honoring kind of like what that is, but not making it the sort of governing thing of my whole life. Um, and, you know, it, like you were saying, I mean, this thing about these messages that we get that are so woven in to like, you know... <laughs> It's like we don't even realize we're being messaged, right? Or no, I just think it's true. <laughs> like, I just think it's like, this is basically God. Like, <laughs> And, well, yeah, and it's also like, you know, if you think about it this way, it's also like generational, like to where like, I'm not just receiving the messages from out there. I'm actually receiving messages from other women in my life who have been messaged themselves. Yeah. You know I mean, what I mean? Even so it's not like DNA, it's just, you know? Yeah. And it's not like it's just coming from some man on high who's made this decision to do this. It is that. And that is like, like, you know, just like horror inducing um, to think about that. Like there's so many, you know, corporate groups that are profiting off of this, but it's also like just been fed as truth to people in our lives. And, and like you said, in the DNA, like Louisa, you know this, but, and actually Brooke, you know this as well, but like you know, there is a history of eating disorder in my family and even the most subtle messages as a child that you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, that is this, just the most subtle behaviors that sort of make these little impacts on you and the way that you see things. And so it is like, 
I mean, every time Brooke talks about this stuff, I'm sort of transfixed. I don't know. I'm kind of like, wow. Like, it's just like speaking these truths that I haven't ever kind of thought of or heard in that way. And I'm really always sort of blown. And like breaking the spell, you know, like. Yeah, breaking the spell. Mm Because for so long, I was afraid that like, if I didn't believe all of this, like, I mean, and without even knowing, if I stop the behaviors around it, if I stop my kind of fear-based lifestyle choices around food and exercise and around really hating myself and my body that like, I would somehow go out of control, you know? And I remember my therapist like broke it down. He's like, I remember there was a woman who said like, she kind of, of a lore around this woman who chose abstinence because she was afraid if she had the even the like the brush of the back of a man's hand on her face she would become like an like irrepressible demon. sexual <laughs> demon <laughs> yes you know and that, like he's like is is oh. is it true like what if you did love yourself yeah. do you think you could still kind of maintain your behaviors and it like I remember we had Jesse Neeland on the show a while ago, and I, I really love her work. And she was talking about um, like, can you love something that you must control? And mm, I've been thinking about yeah. it for a long time, <laughs> about it for like a year, being like, mm. is this an act of love or is this me trying to control it again? And like, and it's such a and it's such a painful thing to unlearn because it's like a having to kind of look at all of the the years. You know, the years of life lost to these beliefs, thinking that like you, you are not perfect, you know, and (laughs) like also the terror of being like, what if I do let go of this? Like, what will happen? What will I, what will my body do? (laughs) Yeah. Right, right, right. Well, and I love that you use the phrase, you know, like breaking the spell, because I think the terror is part of the spell right? Mm-hmm. Because the message is not only like control your flesh, right? Right. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And if you don't, you will be rejected. You will be mm. cast out, right? Yeah. And like, like that, that pushes a button, evolutionarily speaking, of like primal yeah. fear, right? Primal yes. terror of being like rejected from our our group, our society, like we're, we're, you know, societal creatures. So if, you know, we are unacceptable, which we have in no uncertain terms been told we will be right. Of course, we're going to be terrified to question that spell and to be so brave as to try and to start breaking it. Right. It's super scary. But again, I, I just try to, you know, tell myself like the fear is part of the spell, right? Mm, it's not yeah. a result of breaking it. It's part of it. So I'm trying to actually yeah. break through that fear as well, because that also, you know, starts to mitigate when we really go in there. And when I go in there, I'm like pointing to my brain, right? We go in there, <laughs> we look at these thoughts, we start really questioning everything that we think is a given about how we see our bodies and how we see other bodies. Mm, And then honestly, the last part of that isn't just to question it, but it's to decide on purpose what you want to believe. So the last part of this, and this is really hard too, right? If we've never thought we had a choice about it before, like, what do I want to think about, you know, my body? 
And that, I think the rebuild is an even longer process sometimes than the breaking of the spell, right? Like, what do I want to believe? Because, you know, there are certain things that I have decided to believe that subtly may have sounded like part of the message, but I'm choosing those things on purpose. I want to see how they work for me in my life. Mm -hmm. Is it the emotional fuel now of restriction and control? Or is it the emotional fuel... And there's a subtle difference, but it is difference, right, of um, self-care and discipline. (laughs) Like, right? Like, what's the difference between those? There is a difference. So, yeah, it's just really, again, being in touch with this feeling instrument, too. So, right, talking about, you know, the body as as an instrument that feels, being able to, like, reconnect to it and listen to, you know, the emotional vibrations that it's giving me. Am I in fear? Or am I in self-respect, right? Mm -hmm. Am I in, you know, (laughs) punishment or mitigation of rejection and and people-pleasing? Or am I in self-possession and moving towards a goal of my own choosing, my own making? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, also, like, the flavor flavor difference of kind of like a toxic like a poison that I, I remember I was going to, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I do think that there is kind of like, there can be a very kind of toxic masculine internalized message. That's like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like kind of a, mm. a ass kicking boot camp vibe. Um, and there, and that can sometimes be helpful. It can be like maybe the, the positive, um, Alter, alternate would be like you, you go get him champ <laughs> you know like it can yeah, be encouraging yeah, yeah. as opposed to like uh like punishing or I remember um you know so much of my experience like in like fitness spaces being one where I felt like I had to kind of prove my my worth as a human being there because I was a woman and especially in France there was not a lot of women uh in the mm-hmm. way um and I know Lil does CrossFit so I'm sure she's had potentially like similar experiences, but like having this epiphany, like listening to Lizzo (laughs) and like waking up and being like, fuck that. Like, fuck my like self-conscious fear. Like, this is not for you. Like, if you think I'm like too, like too much of a beast to occupy this space, like you can fuck right off. This is not for the male gaze. This is for me fuck Mm -hmm. off and like Mm -hmm. it being the first time that it kind of woke up into the space of like my own power as a choice as opposed to like some kind of like reactionary like oh I better like control my beastly nature for the man you know (laughs) like what a what, what an epiphany you know and I think that there's so much like just the amount of power and the amount of energy spent in like trying to control and like mitigate and numb and push through and hate on one's own, as you say, like sensitive instruments. Like imagine Mm -hmm. if that was like in another direction, like imagine if I released that into something literally other than obsessing about how I looked, you know, like so much energy there, so much liberation. So true. Absolutely. Um, So now about sex. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I'm so sorry. Before we move on, there's one other thing I totally want to jump in because, okay, so we've been talking about kind of the brain and the body as if they are healthy and have been fed these societal messages, right? Which is the case for, frankly, most of us. 
There's one other layer, I think, to those of us with addiction, mm. okay? So in the case of people who have basically lost control of their minds when it comes to food, mm. here's where I'm going to say something. Hot take, hot take. Hot take. Do it. <laughs> so take. many hot, hot takes take. on the show. <laughs> Our okay. fans. So when, when people have lost control of their minds when it comes to food, here's where I actually really change course in terms of like the desire to lose weight or the desire to change your body. And I actually consider it to be a sacred catalyst. Okay. Mm. What Go I mean ahead. by that, it's the catalyst that often leads to the solution which the solution, right, is not in the body, which was just trying to do its job all mm-hmm. along, but is in the mind, which has gone haywire, for lack of a better word. And, mm. like, the mind has gone haywire because it doesn't actually understand the problem, so it blames the body. Okay, here's what I mm-hmm. actually mean by this. So, we, um, and I'm, I'm talking about people specifically who identify with addiction. So it's not only um, behavior that comes from, you know, maybe disordered emotional fuel based on exactly what we were talking about, societal messaging, right? Um, The programming that, the input that we get, the nurture, the nurture, right? That we're taught to hate our bodies and then we punish ourselves from that self-hatred. You know, those of us with addiction identify as actually having... (laughs) Hooray, uh, a secondary issue, which is an actual like brain injury, right? Mm. So we not only have a brain that has been programmed, you know, to to like sort of self-hate the body because of societal standards, but a voice that's like, and you should um, eat and eat and eat and not stop eating and or eat starve and starve and, and starve, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, 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 exactly. Same coin, different sides, right? Yeah. So, so what ends up happening is the brain is like, I don't know where these signals are coming from, like at all, right? All I know is that the body and the brain are like completely disconnected and the body is doing something that the brain doesn't understand, mm. okay? So whether that's weight gain or, or significant under eating and, and mm-hmm. you know, uh, starvation, um, yeah, it, it, the brain doesn't actually understand the problem because it can't look at itself and it kind of can't see its own injury, mm-hmm. okay? So that's a kind of third or second issue. Um, so I have to say that, like, a lot of my clients don't come to my, don't come to this work saying, oh, I hate my body so much. They do. (laughs) I want to make it clear. Like, there is a lot of body shame and a lot of body hatred. But very quickly, you know, so if they do come to me saying that, very quickly we kind of get to the problem, or people already know it, which is, like, I'm in a prison of compulsive behavior with food, Mm -hmm. right? And my weight is a symptom of that, and my body image is a symptom of that, and I think that when it comes to like addictive behavior with food, that's the approach that really yields the best results, right? I am in a prison of compulsion, mm. right? And it is yeah. creating results that I just feel like I have zero control over. And even mm. if I mind all of the societal programming and I was really choosing 
to care for my body, it, that doesn't touch the compulsion, right, that yeah. I'm experiencing. Yeah. So in that case, if it's just like my body feels out of control because my mind is so out of control, even though I recognize like, you know, societal messaging, et cetera, that's, that's another issue. Does that make sense too? I feel like I probably didn't talk yeah. about that as eloquently, but no. I really want to kind of give addiction a little bit of a spotlight here too because I yeah. think that is another issue on top of what we were just talking about no totally and Absolutely. I think you know th that's so beautiful that you mentioned it because I think both of us have had and I'll, or I'll speak for myself I've definitely had disordered eating in that way which was restrictive but like mm -hmm. and it, you know that part there's a part in the big book when they're like you should quit for her sake like the fucking like the oh, yes. <laughs> the many like the reason the things that you tell an alcoholic that make literally no difference, but they might change something for a hard drinker. For example, I remember feeling that way right. or like in retrospect, I felt that way about my restriction. Like it didn't really matter, like, especially mm. because at least that was socially rewarded, you know, like in a way that mm -hmm. overeating wouldn't have been. That was mm -hmm. acceptable. Yeah. yeah. But this mm -hmm. idea of like, I remember going to see a nutritionist and her being like, how about you try and eat eight almonds a day and me being like you're out of your goddamn mind woman like there's no fucking way I'm eating a nut ever in my fucking life you can get fucked <laughs> you know yes. and like wanting like yeah. get paying her money to give me information and wisdom that I was not able to take you know and that yes. kind of like just the like as you could you know the the departure from logic when the kind of addictive yeah. component comes in that makes any kind of reason, any kind of desire, any kind of necessity, entirely null and void. You yes. know, <laughs> like yes. I'm getting more from my ability to emotionally regulate with this behavior or this substance than I would possibly by actually looking at it. So no, thank you. Fuck yes. off. You know, and that that's feeling right. very That's right. Oh God, it is so complicated. Like so it's heavy. so complicated. It's <laughs> yeah, so my body. <laughs> Oh my God, Louisa, like you so described that, I always call it, call it just this tangled pile of threads, right? Like they're all these beautiful colors and they're just a fucking mess. Like they're just so nest, tangled. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like we, yeah. we, can all, we can start to see the ends of these threads, right? Like, oh, I have compulsion. Oh, I have societal messaging. Oh, I, you know, need therapy. I need a healthy routine. I need exercise. Like, God, we know all these things and we pay nutritionists and we pay therapists and we, you know, do all of this stuff. And it's like, we pull one of those threads and the others just tighten, Snarl, right? Yeah. And we're just like, oh, put it all fucking down. I can't yeah. deal with this. And yeah, because food is so acceptable and so push on us is like something you should be able to control. What's the matter with you? Mm -hmm. We just end up like just, again, just pushing it down and just trying to justify and continuing to restrict and just trying to manage the symptoms. Yeah, it's painful. Totally, totally. And Louisa, there's... Yeah, go. There's No, there's just, there's something you mentioned that I think is so interesting that I, you know, hadn't... I mean, I've thought about it, but not, you know, not lately that kind of in my recovery, like the times I've really been motivated to seek any sort of help around food, it's been when I'm overdoing it, when I'm over or, you know, not overdo it, but oh, feel as though I'm overeating in the mm -hmm. times. And, you know, I was like hospitalized for anorexia when I was 17, 18. And mm -hmm. 
I remember just like fighting against the recovery on that because I'm like, I have this sorted out. And in a way, like I remember I got accepted into this really hard to be accepted into sorority, which I still don't like <laughs> talking about that because it's so not my thing. <laughs> that you were still in a sorority. Like, <laughs> it's so weird. Um, but the thing about it, I was really like at my like lowest anorexic weight and I was sort of accepted into that sorority and I remember the, like such a, a loud and clear message from that. And then I remember, you know, I haven't talked about this on the podcast, but like on my 18th birthday, it was the craziest thing. I went from being a year and a half of anorexia to immediately becoming a binge eater mm-hmm. when a piece of chocolate cake was presented to me. And it was like, speaking of sober and hungry, it was like I was all of a sudden, like just constantly hungry mm-hmm. and like, I gained like almost half again of my body weight that I had at the time in three months. Mm-hmm. And the disorientation of that and the shame of that, like there was no obvious shame to me when I was restricting. I felt like I had it all, mm-hmm. you know? And then the, the times I was motivated to really seek help, it's when I felt like I didn't have that same control. But it's like when you're anorexic, it's like the illusion of control because you're just as out of control. You just don't feel as though you are, you know? Mm. And like, I, I don't know. So it, it was sort of an interesting thing to realize that like, I, I sought help when, you know, the shame kicked in from being this sort of like, the, there's a sort of social acceptability around anorexia in some ways that there is mm-hmm. not around, mm-hmm. around being overweight or a binge eater. And, and I just, I don't know. It was just sort of a side note. No, that's that, thank you for being so vulnerable because I know that stuff can be hard to talk about just because it's like, yeah. especially in the moment, like anything that we're ashamed of is is so tough. And like, whew, I mean, I used to not like to talk about not, I mean, I still, still not, not my favorite, but <laughs> I used to be really anxious about talking about like working out how much I trained or like the, the fact mm. that I, you know, I probably still have an eating disorder in, in that mentality, even though it's not, it's not in the same place that it was. Like, I feel like I have a lot of recovery because I used to be afraid yeah. that people would judge me for it, that I was too fat to have an eating disorder, you know, and all that, like mm. just mm. being like, Oh, so, like the, the, the weight of shame around it is so gnarly. And like, what a, what a beautiful thing to be able to have a conversation that hopefully will help people around this stuff. Cause I don't think we're alone in it. Like, again, I don't, like yeah. to varying degrees, I don't know that many sober women who I feel like have sanity in this area. As- Absolutely. That's right. That's right. I've, uh, yes, same thing. And that's why like, yeah, when I really started to really, really dig into this, like it, it just, yeah. I mean, I felt so alone in it for so long. Right. And especially interestingly <laughs> in sobriety, because I got these messages, you know, like, oh, well, you conquered the big one, right? You're not addicted to drugs anymore. You're not addicted to alcohol anymore. Like, the food is no big deal, right? Mm. And so the shame that came from it being a very big deal to me, a very big deal, the biggest deal at that time, right? Um, And again, hearing, um, you know, I'd rather be you know, I'd rather have trouble with food than with other things. And it's like, I'm not comparing them. (laughs) That's not the issue here. Like, yes, if I had to choose between drinking and eating, of course I'm going to choose eating. But 
we get to a point where it's not the choice between drinking and eating. It's the choice between eating and being, eating and feeling, eating yeah. and evolving, yeah. eating and, you know, having free will. Like that's I mean, And not choice. even, I think so much of it is like even just the thought life that this area kind of can take up is so crazy in terms of either like yeah. hyper self-criticism of one's own body and others' bodies and thinking about like planning, obsessing about training, eating, like all that shit. Like I remember when I yeah. first started working with a sponsor, she was like, I hope that someday you can have a meal with us, mm. you know? Cause it was mm. so, I was so just mm. like, no, thank you. I'll just, I'm just here for the company, you know, like all that bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> it was so painful yeah. because yes. I didn't even know that like what I was missing, you know? And, um, yeah. you said something, uh, or no, you know, it made me think of that. There's that new show on, on uh, I'm going to say Apple, that physical. Um, oh, yes. I haven't watched it yet. I'm a little, it's, it's, a it's bit, hard. It's, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> it's, it's kind of scary. I'm not done with it, but there's this, like, the mm-hmm. she. Has, there's a lot of um, Rose Byrne, her, like, inner monologue mm-hmm. of how judgmental she is and cruel of around her body and around her eating disorder. And just, like, I, I identify with that voice. And remember, I remember using, being... Oh, thinking in the past, like if anybody talked to my sponsees or any of the, the people in my life that I love in the same way that I talk to myself, I would go after them with a fucking baseball bat, you know? And, yeah. and so to like, yeah. to even recognize yeah. that like, this is not, this is not the language of a loving God, or this is not the language with which somebody talks to somebody they care about. Like what's with that? Because like in recovery to have a, a solution where you're, you know, supposed to be happy, joyous and free or have access to like feeling of, being in the sunlight of the spirit and yet this Mm -hmm. like shadow of like control and enjoy and like just rip apart oneself constantly with the regardless of the actual behaviors or the results you know because we think it should like look in a certain way if you have a quote-unquote eating disorder but the like the level of like soul vacuum and like brain space yes tyrant (laughs) that this shit takes up is bonkers (laughs) Yeah, it really Ooh. is. It really is. I know. I know. It feels so heavy. But there is there is hope. There is. There yes. is. There is. And I, I see that with you. Like, the fact that you can even, like, name yeah. it and kind of, like, talk about that. That's, I, like, I love that you stopped us to talk about that third factor because it could be easy to forget, like, mm-hmm. what that felt like, right. you know, as right. a lived experience of that insanity. Oh. Yep. So, now about yeah. sex. <laughs> because I do and it's not unrelated obviously so what were the first messages that you received around sex and sexuality so I think about this in terms of like the good the bad the ugly right like so the good um you know interestingly like as a kid growing up in the 80s I was actually not overly gendered as a kid meaning Hmm. like my parents you know, um, put me in like very gender neutral clothes. I was praised for my talents, like academic and musical, Mm. way more than looks or beauty, which I hated, (laughs) by the way. I want to make (laughs) this very clear. I hated that because I just wanted to be pretty, okay? So it's so, God, it's so, you know, like, we are very quick to look at the messages that came directly from our adults, which we should, right? And we should be critical of those messages. 
But my adults actually gave me lots of messages about like, you're smart, you're talented, you have potential, let's explore that. And I still was overpowered with be pretty. Mm-hmm. Be pretty. Tell yeah. me I'm pretty. Right? Pretty me. What can I do to make this, you tell that, me I'm pretty? The other. <laughs> right. And they like cut my hair really short and it was kind of curly and sort of poofy. And I'm like, I hate this. I want long hair. You know what I mean? Like just that kind of thing. I just really, really pushed against it. Now I appreciate what they were trying to do more, but I wanted none of it when I was growing up. <laughs> I started overeating very young. I think I was very divorced from like what my body was and what my adults were telling me it could be and what I wanted it to be and what I wasn't allowed to let it be if like that all makes sense right so yeah like I feel like that started splintering kind of early on Mm. um I would say the bad is that you know that sort of gender neutrality kind of um evolved into like sexual neutrality that was sort of forced upon Mm. me by my parents Mm. (laughs) but um you know again I'm not here to to parent blame I think again they did like such beautiful work in terms of like that other stuff. Um, And I think that I was already experiencing some addictive characteristics very young that they could not do anything about, right? They couldn't love it out of me. They couldn't support it out of me. Mm. Like I was already an uncomfortable little addict (laughs) as a kid way before I started using, right? Just that, that sense of just permanent discomfort. Um, so that personality, you know, really started to splinter between like what I was showing my parents in terms of expressing attraction towards other people, what I was showing my teachers, what I was showing my friends, what I was showing my romantic partners. Mm -hmm. So like my early teenage years were just filled with like heartbreak, rejection, longing, repression, and self-loathing for all of that. Yes. I started self-harming, you know, in my early teens and honestly just felt very alone and like unable to process, you know, all of that emotion yeah. that was coming, be- you know, coming from like what, you know, my true sort of authentic, you know, um, expressive self wanted to explore and to show others mm. and what I was being told was valuable. And it is yeah. so interesting because so much of the time I hear, you know, oh, my parents were telling me that my gender was the most valuable thing about me, right? Mm-hmm. That to, to look sure. pretty or to be attractive or to, you know, get married, you know, to attract a, a partner, um, all of that. In some ways, my messages were the opposite, but yet, still kind of oppressive <laughs> in that way. And yeah. yet yeah. oppressive, right? Like, like, don't date, don't feel sexual, don't, you know, don't express, you know, uh, 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 you know, any forms of what could be stereotypically, you know, gender, gender specific, like, mm-hmm. you know, be this great creative mind, right? And again, like such great intention behind those messages, but I think very repressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so how did, how did things unfold from there? I mean, also, I think it's, it's, in, it's interesting that you, in the beginning of our conversation, we're talking about like the sensitive instrument. You know, and like yeah. the, the yeah. body is like both emotionally and physically and psychologically kind of like a wise and incredibly kind of nuanced, like divining rod, essentially. <laughs> and that like, yeah. Yeah. it doesn't matter whether it's like hypersexual or hypergendered or kind of repressively neutral around that stuff, but that like the body picks up on it and tries to, to 
to, I guess, and then the mind tries to not rationalize it, you know, and we think that there's something wrong yes. with us when in fact, it's actually like a, a incredible empathy and sensitivity that kind of pushes us mm. into often our yes. addictions. Yes, yes. So yes, I had this little sensitive instrument that yeah. was feeling all these things. And I was basically being told, don't really mm. <laughs> don't. Yeah. And again, not just parents, right. And, 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 and not them a lot of the times. It was just all of these different messages. I was just very confused about it. So ultimately, what solved that? <laughs> Food, alcohol, drugs, sex. Right. right. So, you know, my first experiences with alcohol were the solution to all that splintering, right? And all these shattered pieces kind of came together and I felt mm -hmm. very whole and comfortable and relaxed and easygoing and I felt like my best self. Like, alcohol was very much a solution for me. And I was like, okay, this is it. Cool. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I um, started drinking. I was making friends. Um, you know, I, my first partner was a long-term relationship in the last couple of years of high school. And my first experiences were actually really quite loving. And I got really lucky with that because I was so vulnerable. I was so vulnerable. So, you know, unfortunately... <laughs> The alcohol stopped working, right? We know so much about that story. It does, um, yes. <laughs> and was now fueling the further shattering, right? The consequences, it got really bad for about five years. I got sober in 2001. Um, I was 21 and a half years old. Don't do the math, <laughs> please. <laughs> you put me together for the first time. <laughs> or do it, actually. I'm very, like, I I'm... You know, I struggled for literal decades in sobriety with the food afterwards. So, you know, I'm mm -hmm. actually like quite like kind of joking about, you know, that was such a long time ago. But, um, you know, I got sober in 2001. AA, that was my path to sobriety. Um, put me together for the first time, you know. And as I was sort of thinking through this, I'm like, oh, it put me back together. No, 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 no. <laughs> it put me together for the yeah. very first time. <laughs> And it was at that point that I made the first decisions about who I was, right? And I was able to like own my sexuality in a new way and define my boundaries and my interests and desires. And I had a lot of fun. Like it finally got fun, right? And empowered. And then the food started to rear its ugly head. <laughs> and, you know, I'll sort of say one thing about kind of the, the food... And there are really great vocabulary words around overeating, food addiction, things like that. Like there are with like sobriety, like what's, what's food, what's not overeating or what's recovery with food, right? It's recovery with food or stop overeating or <laughs> the language is so bad. And so that's one of yeah. the things that like, side note, I really yeah. want to work on is trying to create vocabulary that actually summarizes our experiences. Anyways. Completely. Um, I got married in 2010, <laughs> my, my poor ex-husband. Um, I was so not food sober. Mm -hmm. So I was married to a man, and he really witnessed the effects of that. Mm. Um, our marriage obviously was filled with many, many, many more things, but very specifically about this issue, it was so big in... Yeah this 
big commitment, yeah. right? Well, it's so hard to the be obs- intimate, like emotionally yeah. intimate if this, like my main partner is definitely my eating disorder for a long time. Yes. 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 Hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. So you make this, you know, big commitment, whether it's a marriage commitment or just a long-term partnership or whatever kind of commitment you make. And I think it's really interesting because those very, to me, very positive desires to, you know, evolve and make big promises bring up, at least for me, um, those issues, right? And so that was very triggering for this, you know, voice that was like, you know, you're a mess and you are compulsive and you are, right? And like, I wasn't, I didn't have the solution to that at that point. And so the obsession was just getting worse and worse. And my weight was just roller coastering all over the place and nothing was helping. Everything was making it worse. We actually divorced in 2015 and it wasn't because of food addiction, but I will say that like me, an active obsession, I wasn't drinking, I wasn't using, but I was an active obsession. And like, that shit is not pretty and it is not easy. And yeah, I think like, you know, as a partner, like you feel so helpless when it comes to living mm. with an addict and like he didn't have the emotional separation to handle it, right? And to cope with it. And again, that wasn't his responsibility. Yeah. We split and I realized like I was losing my inner life to addiction again, right? But this time it was with sugar and socially acceptable, you know, things like, so just kind of to quickly wrap up this, you know, story, like out of this unbelievable pain emerged like my second life, cliche as that sounds, I um, discovered coaching actually. Um, I had both a coach and a therapist. I threw myself back into my, you know, um, AA 12 step I'd never been away from it, but I'd certainly become very complacent, right? And I started to see, as we were talking about, all these people who were struggling with food in the rooms or just like hearing about it in their stories, not seeing it, but like hearing about it in their stories. And I'm like, this is bullshit. What is going on here, right? And I started to study like addiction, science, AA, compulsion, nutrition, diets, hormones, eating disorders, emotional sobriety, and like recognizing that like I had to recover from Straight up food addiction. That's what it was. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I was so not ready or willing, even though I called myself an alcoholic in the rooms of AA for 20 years, mm-hmm. I was not willing to think of myself as a food addict because there's no definition of that. The language hasn't caught up to it. Yeah. There's no clinical definition of it either, right? So that's how this all began, right? By just Ooh. coming square to terms with the idea that like, I have food addiction, what does that mean? Not the exact same thing as alcohol addiction, right? So that's where the study came right. in. Like, what does that actually mean? <sighs> well, so how would you say your own relationship with your body kind of informs or affects your sexual experience? Has this, has this changed much over time? I, I think I'm trying to say that, like, it's definitely still very, very much a work in progress. Like, my automatic assumptions about like my partner's thoughts are, you know, can sometimes be like shockingly negative. And I really have to kind of like let them be, experience the emotion and then, you know, process through that and really decide like, not only did that person not express those things to me, but, um, you know, I'm allowing those 
assumptions to like punish me in these ways. So I, I, I do notice that, um, you know, I wish I could say that, you know, I feel just completely free of all of that. I don't think that that's necessarily the goal. I think the goal is awareness. Mm. I think the goal is, is choice. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, authenticity. I think it's um, a feeling of, of liking myself even when I have thoughts and feelings that are really, really uncomfortable or even really, really mm -hmm. negative, right? And just doing my very best to stay out of the quicksand of shame about the thoughts, yeah. If that makes any mm -hmm. sense. That's, I mean, that's so beautiful though. Cause even that's kind of like meta healing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but it's interesting. I and I love that you brought it up because I think that like, there's a lot of pressure culturally that if you're giving any wisdom on, on a certain specific subject that you have to be totally like 100% recovered. And of course that's not necessarily like the, the 12 step model, like where we're really in kind of mutual aid of, of helping each other. But I know for mm -hmm. kind of coaching or therapists, um, that there's the expectation that you have all of your shit together all the time for the rest of eternity. <laughs> and so it's really mm -hmm. helpful to mm -hmm. be like, actually like this part is a work in progress and, and it's not like, you don't have to be perfect in order to be helpful and growing towards awareness. Like that's, I think really refreshing. And you know what? I actually yes. love Instagram for for the thing that we were talking about before, which is like, how do I even know that those thoughts got programmed in there? Mm. How do I know anything different than that? And I love following accounts on social media that show bodies of all shapes and sizes, yeah. folds and wrinkles, you know, rolls and puckers. Like I follow age positive accounts, body positive accounts. Um, and I've gotten more from that from, from that platform in terms of like new thoughts and new ideas and new ways of thinking about my body than just about anywhere else. So it's so true. Really like, <laughs> That's I, awesome. Yeah. I have, yeah. I, I always talk about there's, you know, the Korean spa in LA and, mm -hmm. uh, and you go and there's a women's Korean spa where everyone's nude. And if I was ever having a weird day mm -hmm. with my body, I would just go to the Korean spa and just see the celebration of every age color, type, yes. weight of body and just go, okay, I'm among friends. Like we're all, we're all on the, you know, in this, in this spectrum of different, you know, ideas or, or different forms of body. And I love, that's kind of reminds me of what you were saying about Instagram. No, that's awesome. Totally. Remember you saying yes. that to me in the class, Lily, and me being like, I would just be too self-conscious, like rejecting it at face value. <laughs> but I mean, I think that even the idea of like, you know, Brooke, what you were saying about like not judging your thought life is that's also such a, like, it's such a tough one because I know that like mm -hmm. to have compassion for that still, like I recognize it. And, you know, we, we've talked in the past a little bit in the show, I believe, maybe not, maybe I just imagined it because I was really curious about it, but about like, um, that like, what is it? Um, like family parts models of psychology where it's like you know, they have like the firefighters kind of it can can show up in an eating disorder for example that like mm -hmm. um and if you're interested in this uh, i highly recommend that you check out um the valerie cheney episode because we go into it a little bit on that one i think but um 
listeners. Um, but this idea of like not not having to be a thought police to oneself, because I think that makes it very difficult mm. to heal as opposed to like compassionately observing the when those parts of me get challenged uh, mm-hmm. by, by being like, oh man, like you just had a really harshly critical thought about that person's body or about my own body or about like just immediately rejecting the idea that like you can in fact be beautiful and worthy of love at any size. Cause like the, the part in me that protects my eating disorder, which was for a long time, a very useful coping mechanism is like, fuck that. Like you have to, you have to control this shit and hold this shit down in order for you to be loved. Otherwise you will never be loved. It's so crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I love that fear again, the rejection. Yep. But it has to come up in order to be confronted and and deconstructed, you know, otherwise it's like, it's just there. Otherwise I'm, I'm never going to grow. Um, right. I love right. that. Ooh, right. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's so, it's so helpful to like, to be reminded that that's actually not a bad thing when we observe our own kind of like old ingrained patterns coming up very loud. It doesn't mean that like we're bad or, or regressing. It actually means that like, this is the growth moment because you can even see it. Yeah. You know, it's not just the right. assumption that this is like the truth that I must base my life on. Um, so to wrap up before the lightning round, uh, we often talk about a sex ideal in recovery, uh, specifically on this show, because that's kind of how the podcast was born. And this idea of like, I wonder if you'd ever thought about a body ideal or the spiritual ideal of a relationship you'd want to have with your body. And if you had, what might that look like today? I think the spiritual idea of the relationship with the body for me is sounds so cliche, but it's really like living in abundance with what I have, a body with all the capability that my body has in this moment, Mm. which might change, right? Along with this like delicious human urge to decide what I want and to get it (laughs) and to improve my health, like, right? If that's a, you know, and again, my own ideals of health. Uh, range of motion, connection to my body. Mm. And I'll just add to that kind of like, so that ultimately I can be of maximum service to others and be an example of what's possible. That's so (laughs) There's a bunch of disparate ideas kind of wrapped up in one sentence. No, love that. I think it's kind of, it's a a complex one, you know, because this is like, this is the, Mm -hmm. this is it. (laughs) Like, this is what we're working with. You know, and right. it's so and easy all our bodies think. are capable of different things, right? We have different bodies in different stages that have different capabilities. So, what is yeah. the abundance of capability that my body has in this moment? What, you know, from a place of abundance, do I want for it? And how can I tie that to other human experiences so I'm not just in my own head about it because I don't really learn Oof. much from being there for yeah. too long, right? I got to get out of that to, to see what's possible. Mm, that's so useful. Awesome. Lil, had you ever thought about well, that? Wait, just before we wrap up, I'm curious. <laughs> like about a, a oh, body, because you, you introduced me this, this idea of like a, a short-term relationship ideal or like a dating ideal. Like I wondered if you yeah. ever thought about like, an ideal relationship that you'd want to have with your body? Because I know you've done this work, you know? No, I have. And I think I have had, you know, I I have kind of come up with an ideal around that. And um, I think I probably even wrote about it with Brooke and I can't remember exactly (laughs) what I, what I would have said, but I think, you know, if I were to kind of revisit that mentally right now, I'd say like, Something 
that's like a loose relationship. I don't know mm. if that makes sense. Like something that kind of isn't grasping too tight and isn't sort of just letting it all, like that I kind of have this comforting, warm, loose relationship, if that makes any sense. Um, and, you know, I do like the idea of kind of living in some of the power of my body. You shared about this a bit, but like I really enjoy CrossFit because I love feeling strong. I just love feeling strong. And so I think that's something that that comes up for me around like honoring the strength of my body, but also honoring the vulnerability of my body, you know, um, and sort of being able to be in touch with both of those things at the same time. And, you know, I know we can't get our worth out of another person, but I've had such an experience of just being appreciated and adored for what is in my, in my current relationship. And so that has been a journey of kind of seeing a mirror in someone else that has made a huge difference, you know, um, of just feeling adored. You know, oh. that. Um, yeah. I don't, Love that. I don't know if that, yeah. if that makes sense. What about you, Louisa? Do you have anything to add on that? Yeah. I was kind of getting emotional listening to you guys. Um, it's interesting. Cause like tradition, like, Career-wise, I'm kind of stepping into a new space and it feels very vulnerable. And I feel like if I let my old ideas kind of rule it around who I, who or what I need to look, be or look like in order to, for it to see, succeed in that space, it will not, I will not enjoy any of it. So I like, mm. we had our first show like as a, as a band last week and I felt like I, I wrote a long prayer as like my morning pages. This is hitting all of the sober sex points, like morning pages, body, body love. Like, yes. Um, it was like, like the prayer was to kind of like, let, um, let the body be evidence of a loving God, you know, like, because yes. if I, I feel like a new level of like sanity creeping in and I like, let me trust it, you know, like, let me trust, let, let me set aside my old ideas about like what I need to be in order to be loved or worthy of love. And like, let my body be evidence that like liberation is possible. Uh, yeah. And cause I, I want to love it. You know, I like, I've worked my entire life for this specific thing career wise. And it's like, I can, it will be a thief of my joy. It will be a thief of my like freedom oh. there, you know? And so like instead of because in, in the past it's been like that's when it's come up like and and it's sort of like it's sort of I mean as you're talking about being like a beast in the gym there's an element of your music and performance that is so ferocious and embodied that I I I love watching you perform mm -hmm. and and get out from behind the tables and I mean that's part of it right you were like a you were like a top part of your body up performer for a really long time yeah shoulder dancing and now there's like a whole you know anyways well so brooke we have a lightning round for you of questions Ooh, that okay. are just quick quick questions don't think just the first thing that comes up so uh what is a smell that brings back a childhood memory for you oh my gosh um rides at disneyland that like oh that like diesel-y smell of, it must've been like, I don't know yes. if it's like the grease they put on the tracks or something. There's a smell 
of Disneyland rides. Kid grown up in the 80s oh in Southern God, California, that. that's where you I know went, exactly right? what you're talking about. You know about. what I'm talking about? I know yes, exactly. on the old school oh, yes. rides. And that smell oh right God, when you're yes. in that fantasy place, you just, yeah. I mean, I think, <laughs> boy, Disney sure knows how to like hit those little pleasure points before you're a full-on addict. Oh my God. <laughs> like this, Seriously. I can just be myself and none of that other shit matters. And yes, Oh totally. my God. So that smell. Awesome. That, yeah. Awesome. Ooh, we're going into the deep subconscious here. <laughs> I'm a Disney fanatic. Yes, I love that smell. I love it. Like more than like the food smell. Isn't that interesting? I like didn't go to the yeah. food smells, right? It was that that grease smell or something and in the rides. Yep. I totally know yep. the smell. That's awesome. <laughs> Does it make you happy? <laughs> it makes me so happy to think about it. So take this however you want. What mm-hmm. turns you on? Oh my goodness. Um for sure. Um, helping other people like that. Again, it just sounds like helping other people with this issue, talking about food, talking about the struggle, talking about the brain, talking about the body, like this shit turns me on. So y'all, I'm super turned on right now because like this conversation is just for me. It's like, oh my God, it's so filled with purpose and it's so, um, it, you know, I I was looking for this kind of openness and vulnerability and and conversation and solution. Hopefully, there's some of that in there, right? Like when I was in the the darkest days of you know the the addiction, whether that was food, alcohol, you know, whatever. Um, and so this this is what does it for me, for sure. Awesome. Oh, last question for you is what do you love? Um, I love recovery. I love my cat, Tybalt. I love, um, uh, I love, oh gosh, this sounds so crazy, but like I love the, yeah, the recovery process of the person with the addicted mind, right? I don't love the addiction, but I too, God, yeah. I love that when it is, when that is our burden, when that is our obstacle, right? That, you know, we continue to seek to overcome it, to evolve, like, and to, to get, I don't know, to just, to solve it. Um, that, that I love, I do. And I love the willingness and the bravery and the courage it takes to do that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Such a joy. Thank you so much, you guys. I really, really appreciate it.